Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're going to the movies. Our guest is Brian McCauley, a man who knows Tinseltown well. He's a screenwriter with several horror movies to his name, and his first novel, Curse of the Reaper, is a dark, funny ode to the slasher tradition. The book introduces us to the figure of the Reaper, a horror icon who would have been right at home on a big night out with Jason, Michael and Freddy. It's a fun chat this week, I really enjoyed it. Brian and I talk about Hollywood as a place of horror, both cinematic and spiritual. We compare our favourite franchise icons and our mutual love for Robert Englund. We talk a lot about how the genre needs to remember to be enjoyable from time to time. And how you can judge a lot from someone's reaction to the latest Texas Chainsaw Massacre. If you like horror movies, you'll love Curse of the Reaper. And if you like really nice people talking about really awful things, you'll love Brian. Remember, you can get bonus content and support this show massively by joining Talking Scared Patreon. The link is in the show notes or just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. All contributions are greatly appreciated. But now, come with me to a back lot somewhere in downtown Hollywood. When the director yells cut, check he doesn't mean your throat. Let's talk scared. Well, good morning, Brian, and thanks for joining me so early to talk scared. Have you got your coffee and are you sitting comfortably? Oh, I'm. I've got my coffee direct from my latest Nightworms package, so I'm. I'm ready to go. Excellent. Yeah. So, yeah. To explain, it's morning where you are. The time difference is wide this week because you are all the way over on the west coast of America. Are you in LA? I am. Yeah, I've been here for about eight years now. Okay. Where were you from originally? I grew up in New Jersey, the same same weird state that birthed Rachel Harrison. So. Um, New Jersey until I could was old enough to escape, and then New York for eight years, and now LA for a little over eight. Right. Which is your favorite coast? You know, I do miss seasons. Like it's fall now, and fall doesn't really mean anything in LA. I miss the changing of the leaves and the brisk weather, but it's I've definitely though settled into the slower West Coast lifestyle. I think New York was a frenetic energy that I don't think I'm young enough to tolerate anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I ask a question before we get into horror? Have you been to Gratitude Cafe? You, you know, I don't think I've ever been, but I have passed it and seen it for sure. <laughs> but I don't remember that I've ever actually been to it. That is, it's a weird segue <laughs> for horror podcasts, but I, I listen to this other <laughs> podcast. It's all about food. Um, and they talk about this Gratitude Cafe, which is a vegan cafe frequented by Moby. Things are titled like The Brave or The Courageous. <laughs> And, and I believe that you have to, when you order things, you have to say, I am brave or I am courageous. And it, to me, having not been to LA, it just sounds like the absolute essence of what I expect LA to be. <laughs> there are so many things, especially because I tend to write about LA and real life things here that I want to put into stories that sometimes I'm like, people will think this is so over the top and embellished and it's just real. Like, <laughs> yeah. LA's to me from afar strikes me as a kind of semi-dystopian, semi-utopian future city that bears no resemblance to the rest of the world. That's how I think of it. That's pretty accurate, I would say. And it's such a it's such a sprawling city that it doesn't really have a cohesive identity or like mm-hmm. feel to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it makes sense that you are there, considering that up until now you've been a screenwriter by trade. Now I say until now because. It's no surprise to anyone who listens to this podcast, you've written a book. Um, your first novel, it's called Curse of the Reaper, and it came out on the 4th of October. So by the time this podcast goes live, there's a fair few of my listeners who may have already read it. It's an absolute treat of a book. It's just what I needed. Really fun. So, so last week I spoke to Andy Davidson about his book, The Hollow Kind, which is a heavy, dense meaty, quite torturous piece of work, which I adored. But it was really nice to switch from that to a book which is really fun and in parts really funny. And Curse of the Reaper takes all your industry experience, I imagine, and it filters it through this lens of madness and monstrosity. And I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out how far that is 
from the reality of Hollywood. <laughs> but, yes. but as I always ask, <laughs> can, can you start us off by introducing listeners to this story? Tell us about Curse of the Reaper. Absolutely. So Curse of the Reaper tells the story of Howard Browning, and uh, he is an actor who played a slasher villain uh, in the 80s, a very long-running franchise, um, like many of the Freddy, Jason, Michael Myers franchises are. Uh, but the story picks up in the year 2005. Howard is in his 60s now. He spends most of his days going from one genre convention to the next to sign autographs for a dwindling fan base, and his life is pretty empty outside of that uh, until one day when he discovers that the studio is rebooting the original Night of the Reaper film, but they are kicking Howard to the curb and casting a younger, hipper actor as the Reaper, um, that actor being Trevor Maine, who is a former child star who was in sitcoms in the 90s, um, and he's in his 20s now and is more famous for his tabloid exploits. And Howard, as he fights to reclaim his legacy, you know, this this role that he gave his entire life to, his mind starts to meld with the monster a little bit. And we're left to wonder, is this uh, connected to his recent Alzheimer's diagnosis? Is this his method acting gone too far? Or is there something supernatural afoot? Is the Reaper really taking on a life of its own? You've nailed that synopsis because you've kind of laid out all the things I want to talk about without giving too much away. So kudos for that. That you, That's a gold star right from the start, Brian. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> that's definitely the, the Hollywood of it all. You have to learn how to pitch. <laughs> well, that that is actually a good place to start because as I said, you know, you've moved from screenwriting to novels. I don't know whether that's a full-time thing or it's, you know, a, a segue, who knows. But I did read that this book actually began life as a screenplay. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. It, um, yeah, I, I went to grad school at Columbia back in New York for screenwriting and my thesis screenplay was this story, uh, back in 2011, I, I wrote the first draft of it. Um, and yeah, it, it was well received as a screenplay. Um, but ultimately it never sold. So it was one of those things where I just put it on a shelf, a metaphorical shelf because everything is just on hard drive now but uh yeah and just kept kept going with my career writing and um working in film and tv but it just always kind of haunted me that this story never came to life and uh when the spark of inspiration came to to turn it into a novel um to go to allow me to go even deeper into the psychological horror through the novel route it just felt like that made the most sense what was that spark of inspiration? What what made you take it on as a novel? It was a combination of things that, you know, a part of it was I had reached a point in my career where, um, you know, I had sold an original TV series idea to Sci-Fi Network and they hired me to write the pilot episode. Um, and, you know, after a year of development and working on this pilot script, they ended up passing on it um, and not producing it. And one of the big reasons was that they were rebranding as a network and they said they're, they were focusing on IPs, which is intellectual property, which means that they're only really interested in shows that are adaptations of books and comic books mm -hmm. um, and, you know, original properties. And so, yeah, that gave me the thought of like, okay, I've been hearing that a lot lately um, <laughs> in, in a lot of meetings. And I was like, well, if I, took that screenplay and I wrote it as a novel and I got it published, then then I would be creating my own IP. And then there's an IP built into the IP with an entire slasher franchise. Um, so there was a there was a practical aspect to it at that point of just also though just being totally burnt out on the industry. And mm -hmm. a lot of that disillusionment, I think, filtered into the writing of the novel and being able to go deeper into the emotional experience that I've had as a working screenwriter. Um, so it kind of was just a perfect storm of, of taking that leap and being like, okay, I'm going to take a breather from pitching and trying to sell screenplays and write screenplays and really dedicate myself to this book and see if I can make it happen. The IP thing I find so disillusionment is the right word. I just, it feels like these days that it, it, I, I've heard that it's so hard to get anything that is an original concept off the ground televisually or cinematically it just feels quite depressing that 
this sense that everyone wants a a, a pre earmark success before it even, they even take a chance on it. I just find it so depressing. Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, it's been going on for years now of just the compression happening in in every creative sphere of of the the gatekeepers are not willing to take risks um and i mean that's their perceived notion i guess i think everything is can be risky in in depending on your perspective but there is that notion that like well it's already a proven entity on one front as a book or a comic book or um or a twitter thread can be adapted into a movie these days but um that's that's how people keep their jobs is by saying like look this is already this has already got a thumbs up from the world so we're going to adapt yeah. that um yeah feels like shudder are doing the good work because there's a lot of original ip on shudder it feels like that is the the, the last bastion of, of of chance taking in in multimedia at the minute you know yeah and i i mean that's it's i think that speaks directly to the fact that the horror genre is to a certain degree its own guaranteed ip <laughs> like yeah. that there is always going to be an audience for a new great horror movie um so so gratefully that's that's the arena where it's less of a risk um for people to take because it's it's such a proven thing i mean horror is just it's i mean it's the best genre i'm not gonna i'm not gonna mince <laughs> words <laughs> yeah so you said about being disillusioned right because um a lot of the the pressure and tension in this book and we'll get into the the detail but it comes from the the movie industry which is capitalistic and it's exploitative in the extreme but you certainly don't shy away from presenting fans and fandom as a source of horror as well for both howard and trevor the two people who are competing over the role of the reaper now you're a horror fan you think it's the best genre like me so you know, what are your thoughts on the roles that fans play in all this for better or worse? Yeah, I think, I think that it's part of, part of it for me was exploring that experience as a horror fan of both mm -hmm. the positive side and the dark side of fandom, um, because I have seen, and I've also experienced both sides of it. Like I, I used to be a much more kind of unforgiving horror watcher. And I, you know, Part of that was just being in my teens and 20s and being self-righteous. Uh, and I would be that person who was like, fuck this, the remakes, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and in my in my 30s now, I feel, and I think because I've gone through the Hollywood system and I know how hard it is to make a movie, I'm so much more forgiving and I try to just celebrate everything that we get in this genre. Um, but I think that my my goal with the book was to kind of explore like the the positives the the real love and adoration that comes in fandom and then of course the dark side and the sort of the pressure the entitlement is is a big part of it i think um and the sort of toxic preciousness around these these films being kind of sacred and that you're not allowed to change anything about them which to me is actually totally contrary to the nature of them every Nightmare on Elm Street and and Friday the 13th and Halloween movie builds on the mythology film by film like there's always some new twist that's added in or some new revelation to the backstories um and that was part of what I wanted to do as well with with the the Reaper franchise was to keep building that mythology yeah you do do that very much and you do keep some elements of screenplay because the book contains excerpts from the Reaper franchise and they clearly show your love for the slasher genre, right? But, and I, I really hope you don't take this the wrong way, <laughs> the films themselves, as you present them in these these excerpts, sound intentionally terrible. <laughs> was it because was it obviously you're, a, you're a, you know, a distinguished screenwriter. Was it fun to, re to relax into writing, you know, in quotation marks, a bad script? It was so much fun and i think that's also part of the the sort of dichotomy that i was exploring for myself of the the love especially that happens in horror fandom the love for quote unquote bad movies um and you know just the the over the top nature the camp um the often just like silliness and it's just to me there's so much joy in it there's so much kind of celebration and kind of grand guignol 
uh, yeah, delight in the way that the human body can be eviscerated. And um, uh, so for me, it was it was an absolute joy. And it's been really fun now to see people who are reading the book and saying, like, I genuinely want to see all of these Reaper films. It's, it's a it's a nice meta level to add on top of the whole experience. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you've kind of nailed the excesses of the slasher genre, right? Because they're franchises, I find that they just become increasingly distorted as they go along. So, you know, there's always inevitably someone goes to space, you know, and the Reaper movies in in these glimpses we get of them, they do become more elaborate and, and more comedic with each iteration. Like by the end, the Reaper is speaking almost entirely in, in one-liners, um, which I, obviously I, I did enjoy. I loved it. But I'd imagine, I could also imagine watching those films as a horror fan, if they really existed, and, be, and, and craving the purity of the first one, you know? 100%. Let's talk about The Reaper then, because witticisms aside, he does actually sound like an authentically great slasher. He's, he's got all the hallmarks, great backstory, unique look, unique kind of weapon. Um, how did you go about creating the Reaper? How did you think up this franchise? Who were your major inspirations? Um, yeah, I mean, de- definitely pieces of like the big three for me are are Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, right? Um, I think Freddy Krueger was probably the biggest influence in terms of the Reaper being a verbal slasher as opposed to the silent Jason and Michael. I just knew that for a story like this, you gotta you have to give him a voice, um, and also because I just love those punny one-liners. Um, you know, Chucky and, and Leprechaun, I think, are also in that in that vein. Um, but yeah, I knew that I wanted him to be really fun and the sort of the, the jester quality uh, of comedy mixed in, and I knew that I wanted to give him this backstory because a big part of the book is Howard being a very classically trained method actor. And I wanted to give Howard something to dig into, you know, the, the man beneath the monster is kind of a, a recurring element of that, that story. And um, so creating the character of Lester Jensen as the person before he becomes the Reaper added that element to me of like, okay, well, this is a real, we're going to ground it in a backstory that's tragic. And, you know, a question of whether Lester was, good or evil is in there. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, I think, I think that the, the big, the, the rusty chain element was, you know, thinking of what's, what's a weapon that we haven't, you know, seen as a signature weapon before. I think the closest might be Hellraiser. Those chains are pretty iconic as well. But um, the idea that the Reaper seizes the weapon that was the source of his demise. uh, And also that just the sort of metaphor that, Howard is chained to this character mm-hmm. um, and then to play with the kind of the sort of Edgar Allan Poe haunting elements of of the sound of the clanking chain uh, felt like a fun element. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Poe because when I was reading about the character of Howard, just to reiterate for listeners who may have lost track, Howard is the guy, the, the older actor, distinguished actor, theatrical background who used to play the Reaper in all of his eight films and Trevor is the young upstart who is replacing him. So Howard and Trevor, old and new, keep that in mind, listeners. Um, When I read Howard, I kept getting this kind of vibe of someone like Poe or someone like H.P. Lovecraft without the bigotry. This very grandiose, somber, pretentious figure because he reads these dense psychology books and he gets really, really method all to embody a character who the rest of the world sees as entirely surface deep. And it's hard to decide at any (laughs) one point whether Howard is a tragic or a ridiculous figure. Yes, I'm delighted to hear that that's your reading of it, because I think that's exactly what I wanted to kind of hold up and look at. It's like, would the Reaper have been that successful were it not for all the work that Howard did behind the scenes? You know, because I think there's a lot of unseen labor that goes into creative work that people don't really always see and appreciate. And so I, I don't know. I don't know that the Reaper would have been even, it's kind of like the iceberg effect, right? People are seeing the tip of the iceberg as this like ridiculous jester murderer, 
But is all that work that Howard did, was it really necessary to make that piece of it, the visible piece really shine? And it is, and he is pretentious and he is um, all of those things. And it's, uh, it's one of, one of the ways that I wanted to explore, like he's not the most likable character as a result of that. And I, I wanted to see, yeah, how deep we could go with that. Well, you, I was really impressed by how consistently you adapted the narrative voice between Howard and Trevor, because you go for a tight third with both. But the scenes featuring Howard are quite pompous in, in tone and in, in language choice. And I'll be honest, I was relieved to get to the first Trevor chapter and realise that Howard's voice wasn't your default setting, that that wasn't your voice, because he's quite insufferable. You know, <laughs> but yep. that was quite, that was quite an interesting stylistic choice to do that, to kind of let their, their respective personalities feed into the third person narration. Thank you. Yeah, that, it definitely was a fun experience for me. You know, this is my first novel and I've, I've written you know, lots of short stories, um, but to tackle these two characters and to, to let that voice come through in that third person uh, style to to let Howard be that pompous voice, and also I had that same experience too of like I don't think we could do a whole book of just <laughs> of just this <laughs> character. Uh, and Trevor naturally has just a much more sort of curt staccato. Um, you know, he's he's arrogant in his. I guess that those are the words I would use. Is that like Howard is more more pompous, and Trevor has a certain the arrogance of youth about him. Um, but they have very different voices and they at the start of the book feel like entire, like they have nothing in common potentially. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I will get shortlist the things that they have in common because I think duality is at the core of this. And th- I hope I haven't made it sound trivial so far. So we've talked a lot about, you know, intentionally bad scripts. We've talked a lot about the, the slightly flippant nature of the book. I, it, there's a lot of, substance and texture and structural work in this book but I want to talk a bit more about inspiration because when I asked you about who inspired the Reaper you said the big three and I I I was hoping you'd mention Freddy Krueger because as much as the Reaper is inspired by Freddy it's quite clear you know he's got a scarred face and there's something just similar about the way he speaks the fact that he becomes quite comedic as the progress as the franchise progresses that's also freddy but more importantly i believe the wider plot is inspired by robert england the actor who played freddy yeah that's yeah 100 um yeah as i mentioned it started as a screenplay in 2011 and so 2010 is when the nightmare on elm street remake happened and so there was a there was definitely a direct inspiration of seeing both what happened with with Robert Englund not returning to play this iconic role of a new actor taking over, of seeing the fans' reactions to it, um, and at that time, me being one of those fans who was very upset, um, and just you know, he he Robert Englund, by all accounts, is a, is an incredibly kind and gracious human who was who supported the remake and supported Jackie Earl Haley in the role, but my story brain just kind of thought like, well, what if? he wasn't. And, mm-hmm. um, so I, I definitely took inspiration from that. And, and I did read his autobiography called the Hollywood monster. And it was, it's fascinating. Um, he did, you know, have this theatrical background. Um, but of course it's, you know, Howard is, is a very, an entirely different human and character that I then drew definitely from, uh, characters like Norma Desmond in, in Billy Wilder's mm-hmm. sunset Boulevard, that element of the faded star who, is kind of stuck in the delusion that she's still like just chasing that spotlight. Um, that's a film that I really love and infused into it. And I think as you were talking about the Poe influence, I think Vincent Price is, is definitely imbued into Howard in the sort of the way that he speaks and the cadence and the, the pomposity of it all. Um, but certainly, yeah, Robert Englund being that, that jumping off point in terms of what actually happened with the franchise. Well, I was so inspired by your book that I, I actually wrote to Robert Englund and I've asked him to come on the show. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I don't know if he will or not, because I imagine he's quite a busy man. But let's uh. see, because I, I would love to talk to Bob Englund because 
he literally is the architect of my nightmares. You know, you listen to this show, so you know that I, I Freddy Krueger in his original guise frightens me in a way that I have never been able to fully articulate. Like mm. he just terrifies me. Like the cons, I have sleep, I have sleep problems. So the last thing I need is, is a dream demon to add into my inability <laughs> to sleep. But um, I just find him terrifying, and I find the, the way he elevated that role. Like I just is is an I'd love to speak to him both to ask him about Freddy and also dispel the horror of Freddy that still lingers over me from childhood. When I saw that film, yeah. I was like eleven, and I feel like if I speak to Bob England, maybe I'll finally be able to put it back in its box and realize it's not real. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? that might yeah that might let you uh, release the the haunting of of Freddy and see the 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 Bob underneath. Um, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. he he really. And I, I did also, there's a, there's an entire documentary series called Never Sleep Again, um, which maybe that will also cure it for you because it's all but behind the scenes of mm-hmm. each of the nightmare films. Um, and, and a piece that I drew directly from there was, was Robert Englund talking about how he would watch these in every film he came back, but it was a new crew of, or a new cast rather of young hot actors. And he was stuck in this role watching these new young actors knowing that they were just at the start of their career and that rage was something that he filtered into the character of freddie mm. that that sort of like resentment and i i love that notion that is interesting because well you mentioned norma desmond from sunset boulevard um there are so many great stories about the kind of personal cost that hollywood demands so yeah there's there's norma desmond there's there's blanche and baby jane in whatever happened to baby jane um, mm. You know, Mulholland Drive, Betty, th- things like that. They're each, I would say, intrinsically gothic stories. Quite aside from the horror on the screen, they are these gothic stories that present Hollywood as this site of loss and rage and haunting and nightmare, like you just said about Bob England. And I've actually recorded a Patreon episode with a, a scholarly expert into Californian gothic to kind of partner this episode that we're recording. Um, but as someone who's been in that Hollywood scene yourself, what what's your take on Tinseltown as a site of horror? Because it's so ripe for me in a unique way. Yeah, it definitely. I mean, it's it's this like bright light that draws people in, right, from all over the world, and often riding in on these big hopes and dreams and these these big promises of what this town can give you um and there is an element of like chasing immortality as well i think that like if i can just get my big break and people will know me and people will see me like there's there's just a deep-seated desperation that i think hollywood really taps into um and i you know when i first moved here i moved to you know, Hollywood is 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 a neighborhood within Los Angeles, and I my first apartment was in Hollywood, a block away from the the Star Walk, the Walk of Fame, um, which is literally just stars on the street in front of like you know a Chipotle, um, and my neighbors, you know, there's there's all these people dressed up to take pictures, um, dressed up as famous characters and such, and my neighbors in my apartment complex were a couple. And it was Jack Sparrow and Cinderella. And I would see them leave the house and walk hand in hand to the Walk of Fame to go take pictures with tourists. Um, and I assume they were they were also trying to break into film and TV. And that's just like part of part of the Hollywood life. Um, it's just such a strange, strange town in that regard where reality feels distorted um, is another thing that I certainly leaned into into this book of like, Delusion and distorted reality is so much a part of it. Um, yeah. Is it a lonely place to be? I definitely say so. Um, yeah, as I mentioned, like I lived in New York for eight years, and I think some people might have a conception of New York as being like an aggressive or lonely place, but you're constantly in connection with people. Like everybody's on foot and in the subway in that city, and there's a sense of mm-hmm. you're all in it together. But LA, everybody's stuck in their car in traffic and separated. And there's also, I think in Hollywood, this sense of competition. Um, There's this sense of 
it inspires a scarcity mindset of like, if that person gets the role and I don't, then I've, I have lost and I need to beat them. Like there's that competitive aspect that, I mean, it's one of the things that I'm really grateful for the horror fiction community that I have, I've seen the direct opposite, which is everybody is so supportive. (laughs) There's no, like, if you get yours, I can't get mine. It's all just celebrating each other's successes. Whereas in Hollywood, it's, it seems to be the opposite. Yeah. It's right. I'm, I, I'm quite averse to the idea of urban living these days. So I've become one of these smug bastards who's, who's left a city and gone to live in the countryside. And I rhapsodize how green the hills are all day long. You know, like I, 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 I'm an insufferable countryside convert. Um, but there, there is something about city living which get, like really makes me just cringe and, and these days. And I, I, I'm obviously, I'm clearly wrong as much as I'm right. Um, but Hollywood itself, it just strikes me as such a transactional culture and like i've never heard that phrase before scarcity mindset but yeah exactly that the fact that it's not enough for you to win but someone has to lose for you to win yeah yeah i think that 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 transactional nature that the exploitation and i mean as you had mentioned earlier it's all rooted in capitalism right i think that's that's the system that hollywood is really a a prime representation of and these days, that's only getting more and more clear as we're seeing these mergers and these these bizarre, seemingly bizarre decisions that are being made by various studios and corporations. But it's it's not that bizarre when you realize that it's all just they're just trying to make money and they're not really in the business of making art. And um, it's it's all just rooted in in finances. Well, that's something you definitely take on in, in Curse the Reaper. So you both in horror and through satire. You, you take on this, you know, the tussle between the commercial and the artistic sides of, of Hollywood. And I'm using Hollywood as a just a, a catch-all term for movie, movie making. So, for example, right, the new Reaper movie is being produced by this character called Chuck Slattery, who is just awful. He's like the archetype of a slimy producer. Uh, he's like something from a Coen Brothers movie. Um but it's being directed by this auteur from Romania who has a really idiosyncratic, uber-artistic way of making movies. Quite funny scene where he just won't give Trevor any direction apart from walk. <laughs> um, and that, that distinction between you know, commerce and art is, is mirrored somewhat in the difference between Trevor and Howard. And that said, I felt like I should, as someone who loves the arts... I felt like I should come down on the, you know, the auteur's vision. But I, I also kept thinking it, it would be quite nice to see Trevor's schlocky, commercially minded horror movie, you know, because I think the highbrow <laughs> snobbery is sometimes a bit of a plague in horror. What's mm-hmm. your preference? Which Reaper would you rather see? Oh, uh, that's a great point. And I think, I think again, like this is, this is where for me writing the book is exploring that tension within myself of like, there's part of me that's like, wants it to be a highbrow thing. And then part of me that's like, that's nonsense. I just want the silly schlocky version. Um, I mean, I think for me personally, I, I, the the Reaper, I think is, is at its best and its essence when it is that, that sort of over the top fun, um, you know, and it's, it's something that we're seeing a lot these days too, of like, there's, the the big notion of elevated horror and all that um uh, it's a phrase that makes me want to pull my own face off i did right it, it's, it's very it's incredibly like condescending right um yeah and that's that's where i think yeah we don't we don't need those kinds of classifications of like horror can be can explore things like grief and trauma and all of that and it can also just be a fun fucking haunted house ride mm-hmm. and not one of those is not above the other one is not good and the other is bad it's all to me just a exemplary of the breadth of what this genre can do and can be um and i i'm here i'm here for all of it i mean i was having a conversation last night with somebody from horror movie world i can't say who it's gonna be a bit of a surprise and i i was saying that i have a bit of a an aversion to this this new trend of horror 
that is purely about dread. You know, the, the, the slow burn and the deeply thematic movies. And, you know, it's, it's about making the audience feel truly miserable. And I don't think horror and misery are necessarily the same thing at all. I think horror can be an entirely fun project. And I, yeah. I hate the film Hereditary. Now, I know that's kind of sacrilege, but I hate it in the way that I hate The Shining, in that I think they're not scary. Um, and they're both too, too in love with their own sense of misery. As, and they forget to entertain the audience. They just want to traumatize and upset the audience. Yes. I want to see The Reaper. I want to see this a little bit, you know, but I want to see it done well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that that hits, that hits on something very, that I, that resonates for me big time is that notion that like horror is not about misery, as you said, like horror can be a really joyful genre. I mean, it's the same, it's, you know, at its core, we're talking about mortality, right? That's what horror is rooted in. And different cultures look at mortality in different ways. And like, you know, Dia de los Muertos is a celebration of death and, and, and like, it's, it's all about like how we, how we want to approach this whole notion and, and experience it. Um, because it is, you know, for me, like the horror films that I love the most are the ones that I'm going to revisit and rewatch. And I saw Hereditary once and I'm not going to watch it again. And I'm not saying it's a bad movie, but it's just not a movie that for me was a pleasant experience. And Friday the 13th, part six, Jason lives. I have seen over a dozen times probably, and I will watch it once a year because it makes me laugh and it, and there's brilliant gore effects that are just these wonderful displays of creativity and artistry that also adds a layer of joy to it. And you can tell that the people were having fun while they were making the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is something I wanted to explore in the book too, with like that notion of, of, uh, of a sort of toxic approach to creation that like um, the idea that you have to be, uh, I think it's prevalent for writers, especially that you have to be like a miserable person, uh, like a miserable alcoholic who pushes everybody away in order to really create like art with a capital A. It's a toxic notion that I I think needs to be expunged. Um, like yeah. creation is a, is a joyful thing. It's a celebration of connection. That, that's a beautiful way to put it. Um, I, I think everything we're saying can be summed up by distinct responses to the the latest your know, Netflix Texas Chainsaw movie, right? <laughs> so yes. I know it, I know it's a really throwaway film to to make it the linchpin for a, a conversation about the state of modern horror, but I genuinely think horror fans in quotation marks can be split into two camps. Whether you cheered or groaned at the scene in that film when Leatherface got on the hipster bus. <laughs> because for people who haven't seen this film, there's basically like, it's all about gentrification and there's like a, a vague metaphor. But then there's this bus full of kids partying and Leatherface gets on board and they all start taking a photo of him for Instagram and saying he's cancelled. And then he goes through them like a frog in a blender. And I, I didn't love the film. And I thought the scene was stupid, but I had a massive grin on my face. But some people, it was like, it was like you'd taken a shit on their Bible. You know, I don't mm-hmm. get that reaction. I don't understand it. I don't, I don't understand that depth of rage about, you know, Texas Chainsaw was a, a it, it was a, a budget movie that managed that, you know, became a cult thing. It, it's not some sacred text. That, that's just my take on this. And I think we do need more fun in horror. Yeah, no, 100%. And that movie in particular is one that I, I agree I would point to as the way that people reacted to it. Like, I had a blast watching that movie. Um, and the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre was one of probably the film that made me want to become a filmmaker. Like, it affected me so profoundly in in this, like, absolute nightmarish way of mm-hmm. like, I, it didn't feel like a film. It felt like someone had carved out this slice of nightmare and put it on celluloid and it just unsettled me so deeply. And the new Texas Chainsaw is nothing like that. It's a, no. it's, it's, it's a haunted house. It's like an 80 minute haunted house ride, a gore fest. And I had the best time with it. I thought yeah. it was so fun. I thought there were scenes of genuine tension and terror mixed in with wild gore effects and to see people just, as you said, I think, and it's it's a big part of 
of Curse of the Reaper as well, that notion that like these are sacred texts and you're not allowed to change them. And um, it just doesn't, that, that doesn't resonate with my experience. Exactly. Texas Chainsaw is a masterpiece. It's one of the greatest horror films ever made, but no one's taking it away from you. <laughs> Remember that, you know, no mm-hmm. one's saying you can't have it anymore if they make new ones. Um, yeah. I just think people get their knickers in a twist over things that don't really matter all that much. Um, yeah. To talk about things that do matter. So we, I, I've kept returning in this conversation to ideas of duality and comparison, you know, art versus commerce, the competing tones of the different chapters. Um, and as I said at the start, to me, it seems clear that you've really built duality into this book, particularly in character, right? So there's the obvious Jekyll and Hyde duality of Howard and the Reaper, but you also seem committed to doubling and comparing Howard and Trevor. There are like numerous occasions where the chapters immediately reflect each other as sort of situational doubling. So they both take drugs in the same bathroom. In one chapter, Trevor lies to his AA sponsor. In the next, Howard lies to his friend Joan. Um, the list goes on and on. I mean, unless I've gone way off track and into the weeds here, what are you getting at with that structure? Yeah, I, I very intentionally was was seeing it as these these parallel character studies, um, and and like I, I had touched on a little bit at the start, that idea that I wanted to craft these two characters who felt very different at the outset. This actor in his sixties and one in his twenties, this from very different generations, very different approaches to their ex, their acting experience, um, and to to parallel them in a way that there felt like a sense of connection um, and to allow that to continue to unfold over the course of the narrative. Um, and Trevor also having his own sort of duality of having grown up as a child sitcom star, as like a, a cutesy precocious kid in a sitcom and him trying to move away from that identity. But I think ultimately like the goal is to, is that in that in showing that connection is for me also what writing is all about. It's about building empathy and and a great story has a, has the potential to put you in the shoes of someone's experience that is not your own experience. And if you can live through that experience, then you have a much deeper and profound understanding and empathy for other people. And so I think that was that was rooted in the idea of these two people who seem so different. Um, and to show that they they might have more in common was was part of the goal. And they do discover that, don't they? Because they start as antagonists, and I suppose they end as antagonists, but they learn something about each other and about each other's perspective as the book continues. Yes, and I mean, I mean, one thing that they have in common, I think, is is the, is the Hollywood of it all, like the overarching theme of of this. They're all in. They're both plugged into the same sort of system. And they've had different experiences, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. I mean, the other thing they have in common, which is a fairly big theme to leave this late in the conversation, is that they are both sort of mentally compromised. So Howard mm-hmm. is in the early stages of Alzheimer's, whereas Trevor is an addict. And they felt like very serious plot strands in an otherwise very fun book. The drug addiction, particularly so. How did you go about capturing, you know, Trevor's mindset? Because it feels like you are. It, it doesn't feel like one of these throwaway character things. Oh, always oh, complicated. Always, oh, you know, as if it's just like a, a trivial flaw. It's right in the core of his journey through this book. Yeah, it. You know, that was part of, I guess, part of the duality of the story in general, too. Right? Is the the campy, fun horror thrill ride juxtaposed with some very serious psychological horror and mental health struggles with these characters. And I, I guess that's part of me just wanting, that's what I want. I want all of that from my horror. So I'm going to try as a writer to, to find the balance of putting it all into a story. Um, but I think with Trevor in particular, I think it, it would have been easy to do the, the stereotype of, you know, the child actor struggling with addiction. Like that's, that's been the butt of a joke for too long. And I think especially in, in 2005, when the story is set, the paparazzi nature of it all, and just the exploitative, like 
the gawking that public do around that. Um, and I really wanted to, to take that surface and then to go much deeper and again, to build the empathy of like, this is not, you know, something to, to point and laugh at. I I want people to see and experience what this person, what the struggle really looks and feels like. And for me, it definitely comes from a place of having like a, of having loved ones who struggle with alcoholism, alcoholism and addiction. Um, and I think that it's so pervasive. Uh, I, I don't know anybody who doesn't know someone who doesn't know what that feels like to, to see someone struggle with that. Um, and for me to have gone through my own work around it of um, sort of my experience being closer, closer to Sophie's experience in the book, which is Trevor's girlfriend um, who's trying to be supportive as, as Trevor is, going through his recovery process. Um, but yeah, it, it, I think the root of it is, is an intense anxiety that, that definitely is, is my experience. Um, and a, a sense of low self-worth is, is a big part of it as well. Um, and that's something that was, was easy enough for me to, to tap into. Um, but yeah, I think for both characters to, to lean into the idea that they're both struggling with, with different shapes of sort of the same thing. Mm. I mean, is that why you set the book in the early 2000s because of the paparazzi culture? Yeah, there were a few reasons. Like I, you know, I think of the the remake trend. The first one that comes to mind would be the, the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake uh, that I happened. That film. I love that <laughs> yeah. film. so much stick and I love that film. <laughs> I love it. Um, that came out in 2003. Um, and yeah, so I was just kind of charting like, okay, well, I do want to place this somewhere around the start of the remake boom, even though this story could have easily taken place today because we have, now we have the requels and the reboots of reboots of reboots. Um, but also I, I liked the idea of exactly like you said, of like the paparazzi aspect of it. I think nowadays, a lot of celebrities are able to sort of seize control of through social media, right. Of like you know, people like Chrissy Teigen, it's like, you can basically have a live view into her world through her Instagram stories. Um, I have learned through my partner. Um, and it's, there's less of a lure towards those paparazzi photos and those inside glimpses, right? But before the age of social media, it was such a, such a draw and such a, like, people loved it and delighted in, in these, these poor human beings and their struggles. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think, not wanting to deal with that technological element was also part of it. It does work as well, thematically, because Trevor is in this impossible position. There's a real pathos to it. So because the producer wants him for this role, the role of the Reaper, entirely because of his notoriety, because he's fresh at rehab and the scandals have kept him famous. Uh, and it's made quite clear because he doesn't even have to audition. They just give him the job, you know, because he's famous enough. Yet at the same time, the studio has no tolerance for his continued drug use. He's not allowed to slip. And, and that yeah. felt like an absolute distillation of, of the early noughties celebrity that we wanted them because of they were fucked up, but they weren't allowed to fuck up anymore. Yes, 100%. It's, it's those impossible expectations, right? Mm. And, and the exploitation of the pain of a human being and, you know, ex exploiting their struggles, but then having zero tolerance, as you said, for if they slip, you know, as, as Chuck says, like, if you slip up on, on my time, like, that's it. It's like, it's, there's this sense of ownership of like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take control of you now. There's this, yeah. they're just like, pe people become puppets in this, in that kind of system. There's no doubt. I mean, I think that's another thing that people in Hollywood live with the constant fear and anxiety of from from actors to studio executives. Again, it's all about like getting or keeping your job and knowing that you are easily replaceable is like a constant anxiety because there are thousands of people in this city who would pardon the the pun, but who would kill for the job. And <laughs> it's it's just the yeah, it's the, the literalized nature of that. Quite similar to British politics right now, to be honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
the, the final thing about the drug abuse and the dementia is that they do allow, they allow you as the writer a kind of get out clause on whether the Reaper's influence is a psychological or supernatural phenomenon. So I'm not sure we've been very clear what happens in this book without, there's no spoilers here, but basically as Howard becomes more and more resentful of losing this gig, the Reaper starts to actualize and almost become, you know, he's a voice in his head and he's, he loses, it's kind of like a possession almost. And it, it reminded me a lot of Stephen King's The Dark Half, which again is about, you know, a, a, a creator, a, a fictional character who takes on a kind of corporeal existence, um, if that's a fair comparison to make. But uh, yeah. you you leave a lot of space to read it either way, as either that Howard is, is, is suffering from a distorted reality or there is a genuine possession going on. Do you have a preferred take on that? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, first of all, a, a Stephen King comparison is, is always fair and welcome. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I, that also was, was a very conscious goal was that I love stories that walk that tightrope between psychological and supernatural. Um, because to me, and perhaps this is a cop out, but to me, the question is more interesting than the answer. Um, mm-hmm. Because if someone truly believes that they are, for example, possessed by this by this character, and it is making them take actions in the real world that have real world consequences, then the question of like, is it real or not real? Like to me, it's like, well, it's clearly real because the consequences are real. And the question of whether or not it is a literal uh, supernatural entity or a psychological manifested entity becomes kind of a moot point. But I, yeah, it's something that I, I very delightfully wanted to leave to the reader's experience because I also think that it depends on what scares you the most <laughs> as to which side of it you you kind of come down on, I think. Well, I think what scares me the most is what you just said, is that there is no difference. That if you are disturbed to the point where you think this is happening and you are therefore doing things because of it, there is no real difference to you as the as the perpetrator stroke victim. You know, that's what I find scary is that hinterland between the two. Um, I, I will say that I found the book, I, I thought it was a psychological take right until about the last fifth of the book. Then I thought, mm, maybe not. So now I can't decide, but I, yeah, I still don't <laughs> exactly know. Yeah, but I, I like the ambiguity as well. I always think those things, they work quite well. Um, here's a question that I don't know if you've been asked or not. And if you have, I apologize. But would you rather your book, Curse of the Reaper, be adapted into a movie? Or would you rather write the script for a real Reaper movie? Oh, uh, I have not been asked that question yet. Nobody has been cruel enough to... <laughs> <laughs> make me answer such a question i mean i think the book i would have to say like that to me like that's there's more of my my heart in the book that i i would love for that to come to life and with the asterisk being like well ideally if the book adaptation is successful then the demand will be there to make the reaper films be right behind it yeah okay well here's an even crueler question Who would you want to play the Reaper? Uh, Don't try and convince me you haven't thought about this. I have, I have, but I have entire lists of... (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to go with an actor who was a big inspiration point back when I was writing the screenplay version and who is now actually of the the right age to play it. Um, And that's Brian Cranston. Um, Because back in 2011, I was watching a lot of Breaking Bad as everybody was. And that is a that is a Jekyll Hyde story. Um, mm-hmm. And we have seen him do that balance of like the soft, soft older man and the darkness that boils to the surface. Um, and I just think he's a tremendous actor. But as I said, there are there's a whole list of of people I would love to see in this role. And and that's also, I think, part of my approach to writing characters 
because of my screenplay background is always, even if it is a novel, is thinking like, uh, what's going to make this successful is like, if there's a character that an actor sees and is like, oh, that would be fun. I want to play that character. Mm -hmm. Um, And that approach for me helps me to always come back to that and whatever I'm writing and thinking, well, this has to be a fully realized inhabitable role that excites somebody. That's an inspired choice. I don't know why. I kept seeing Kurt Russell. I really don't know why. Oh, yes. I have definitely thought about Kurt Russell because, again, like that, he's in, in that, that sweet, sweet spot now of he's, he's kind of having that, that second wave comeback now of being mm-hmm. the, the 80s action star who's now coming back into the Fast and Furious franchises and yeah. also has that horror pedigree. And, of course, he made, he made Death Proof as well, didn't he? As well, which is yes. kind of a similar vibe about, you know, an ex, the, those stuntman who's gone loco and uh, yeah i've also thought about uh kevin bacon because you know his very first role was in the original friday the 13th so that would be a a nice meta casting choice yeah yeah one thing i will point out and this is this is my ongoing attempt to crowbar chat about the melodramatic tv drama this is us into a horror (laughs) show um which I i don't know if you caught that when me and rachel harrison went off the deep end about this is us um, I loved a, it. It's delightful. Have you seen the show? I have not, actually. So there's a character in it who plays a kind of child actor who comes from a really, really terrible sitcom to try and be a respectable actor. Um, his his long-suffering partner is called Sophie, and she's a nurse. And Whoa. it just, yeah, it just, it really fits for Trevor. I don't know what the actor's name is. He plays a character called Kevin in This Is Us. I don't know what the actor's name is, but I just could not not see him in the role. Yeah. Oh, also, he has has a kind of... The whole plot trajectory is that he has drug abuse as well and alcohol abuse. So it's just so perfect. That's so wild that the way that sometimes those things align in in some kind of subconscious uh, pop culture way. But yeah, it's interesting. I feel like Trevor, I have a much shorter list because I just feel like I'm now of the age that I'm out of the loop on who the hot young actors are. So I'll leave that choice to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and before I go any further back into this is us, let's just move on. Um, can I ask you the tried and tested question? Can you recommend a book for us and tell us why? Yes. Um, I'm going to recommend root work by Tracy cross. Um, it comes out, November 15th, I believe. And it's from, from Dark Heart Books, which is Sadie Hartman's imprint. Uh, and I was, I was grateful to get to read an early copy of it. And it is fantastic. It's set in the late 1800s in, in segregated Louisiana. And it's about three sisters. And I won't tell any more because I just want people to experience it. But one of the things I really love about it is it's very visceral. Like it's set in the, in the swamps and you can just like feel and smell the location mm-hmm. and and the characters are just so vividly drawn um so yeah I'm, I'm excited for folks to experience that that's uh root work by tracy cross i'm guessing from the title it's some kind of cunning woman folk horror type vibe is that yes is it's that it's fair? folk it's folk horror uh yeah the the basic kickoff premise is the three sisters go to live with their aunt who who practices hoodoo and they start to learn her ways and it's it's very I mean, pardon the, again, the, the pun of like root work. It's very grounded horror that feels um, very like lived in and real in that way. That's, that's wonderful. That's cool. I shall, I shall check that out. Definitely. Is it next year you say? Uh, it is actually November 15th. So ah. I think by the time this comes out, it should be right around the corner. Right. I might, I might try and read that for next year's schedule. That sounds, that sounds good. Also don't apologize for the puns. I can really see where the, the reapers little pithy asides come from you're very, you're very yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's an uh, element that i i can't uh can't deny comes from me <laughs> my last question and you, you know what's coming brian but what truly scares you all right i've got i've got two answers because i have the 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 quick fun one and the the heavier one so i'll get the, i'll get the the heavier true truest one out of the way which is like is the existential fear. I mean, I think this whole book is, is rooted in my own existential fears and terrors. And so my biggest fear, what truly scares me is the idea that I would come to the end of my life and look back and feel that I had not lived it 
fully enough. And that was, was leaving life with just riddled with regret. That scares me, scares me more than anything to, to think about. Um, you know, I kind of try to try to frame every decision I make in, am I being motivated by fear, which is again, that scarcity mindset, closing myself off, trying to control things, or am I acting in love, which is like expansion, abundance, belief that like life can and should be bigger. Um, because I just don't, I don't want to end up looking back and feeling like mm-hmm. I'm living in the old Victorian house with my cat and a basement full of monsters and, and no loved ones. Yeah. That's one that haunts us all a little bit. <laughs> yep. But the fun answer is being buried alive. That's, <laughs> <Gosh>. that's <laughs> which is, is a longstanding terror of just like, no, which I guess is kind of existential in its own way, because what's so scary about it is you're, you're literally faced with your immortality second by second as you're just, you're just stuck. My dad, he's so horrified by the prospect of being buried alive that he can't even allow me to talk about it, even in jest. Like, have you watched the, the Ryan Reynolds movie, Buried? Yes. Ooh. Yeah, so I, I I put that on and we had a massive argument just that, that I'd made him watch it. He was furious. Like, it's such a primal fear. Would, are you are you going to be buried with a little bell? Is that your plan? That's that's the classical response, right? Like the the solution is um, to make sure that that I, I'm actually dead and that if if I'm not, can ring that bell and have somebody dig me up again. I think yeah. actually, though, I, I, I'm going to go the cremation route. That feels like the the safest bet to make sure I'm, because I'd rather be cremated alive than buried alive. <laughs> What a way to end a conversation. <laughs> yeah. I think I want to be stuffed. That's my choice. I want to be stuffed and like hung on the wall. Oh, that's great. Or like the the, the Vincent Price House of Wax approach. Yeah. Has become a, yeah. yeah. Stuffed, hung on the wall. So that if my wife remarries, her, her new husband's got to sit there looking at me all the time, <laughs> staring down at him. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's my choice. Yeah. <laughs> Empty me out so I'm definitely dead and stick me on the wall. Well, what a delightful way to end the conversation on a Friday evening. Would you rather burned alive or buried alive? <laughs> Lovely. Well, we'll we will leave it there because we're not going to improve on that as an outro. Um, I will just say, Curse the Reaper, as I've made pretty clear, absolute treat of a book. It's it's great fun for the well, everyone, but the horror initiated, particularly people who are kind of my age going to love this because they're just going to see so much of the horror of the the youth that they you know that that kind of formative horror viewing that they watch so yeah i hope everyone who hasn't read it yet reads it and loves it but but brian mccauley thank you for talking scared thank you so much for having me neil this was a wonderful experience i think i'm starting to sound like a bumpkin (laughs) So it's dawned on me, a few weeks ago I said to Erin Adams that the thought of living in New York terrifies me. And this week I went after LA. And you really don't want to hear my thoughts on London, people. Yeah, maybe I've gone full bumpkin. Knock out a few teeth, give me a banjo and some moonshine and let me loose on the unsuspected city folk who come to visit. I mean, don't get me wrong, I did love living in Glasgow, right? And I spent some wonderful times in Vancouver but I think I'm just more at home in the countryside these days. Even though, let's face it, the countryside on paper is definitely creepier. There's a great Sherlock Holmes quote that I hunted out for this. He says, It is my belief, Watson, founded upon experience, that the lowest and vilest alleys in London do not present a more dreadful record of sin than does the smiling and beautiful countryside. I've always loved that quote. It carries such a sinister connotation of of things going on in secret places. And I I think of it every time I run past a spooky old house on the moors. Hmm. Maybe I'll I'll do an episode on the creepier aspects of Sherlock Holmes sometimes in the future. Does that appeal? Let me know if that appeals. But to bring it back to Brian's book, the LA and Hollywood offered up in Curse of the Reaper is scary in a whole different way. It's gleaming and it's modern and it's stylish, but it's also soulless and Darwinian. And I honestly don't know how anybody ever makes it in that world without losing who they are. And, and credit to those who do, like, like Brian, who 
is a delightful human being, despite spending the best part of a decade in a city that he describes as a kind of Skinner rat maze. That loss of self is the source of both satire and horror in Curse of the Reaper, and the two tones meld perfectly. It's a book that has you smirking one minute at an in-joke and then laughing out loud at the scripts. And, and I am sorry, Brian, but you've written scripts for the most appalling-sounding movies I could imagine. They are beautifully dreadful. <laughs> but then on top of that, there are these really authentic scenes of addiction and mental illness with some proper gnarly slash of violence to pep things up consistently. Yeah, I had so much fun with this book. I loved it. And... I've mentioned in the past that fun is a neglected value in horror. It often sounds like damning with faint praise, when in fact it's the highest of accolades. And I'm glad Brian agreed with that, the importance of fun. Because I'm I'm really not into this resolutely dread-inducing horror trend in movies. You know, things like The Dark and The Wicked, which I'm frankly too scared to watch. No, I like popcorn nastiness. You know what I think the perfect horror movie is? There you go. The Conjuring. It's properly scary, it has a good sort of central story, but it's also a riot of a movie. It's so much fun, if you consider jumping out of your seat fun. Um, I have big hopes for this Barbarian movie, which has just opened here in the UK. I'm, I'm going to try and check it out this week. I've seen lots of you online just loving it, so I'll report back if I can find the time to go see it. But tell me what your thoughts are on that film. Tell me what other films I should watch that meet that same scary, fun criteria. The wisdom of crowds is great for this sort of thing. You know the drill. Email me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or find me on Insta and Twitter at talkscaredpod. And I'm not about to leave Twitter just because some plasticine mould of a moron has bought the place. So much of my horror family connection is predicated on that little blue bird. So I'm going nowhere. Full respect if you do. I get it, take the stand, but do me a favour, if we follow each other and you do leave, let me know where to find you in future. It'd be heartbreaking if we all just went our separate ways. Now, I'm starting to wind down towards this much-heralded break that I'm taking, but there are a few episodes left in the tank first. I'm back next week with Erica T. Wurr to talk about her new novel, White Horse. It's a gritty barroom brawl of a book. And it gives me the chance to talk about three of my favourite things. Stephen King, Indigenous Horror Law and Bigfoot. <laughs> Be here for that. But until then, dispose of your pumpkins humanely. Get your big coat out for the winter and plan your horror consumption for the long nights ahead. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared.